We'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy is um, a letter that we've been walking through for the last several weeks, um, written by the Apostle Paul towards the end of his, not only of his ministry, but of his life. Um, In the early 60s, um, writing to Timothy, a younger minister who is like a son to him in the faith. Um, Paul is writing from Macedonia to Timothy in Ephesus. Um, as Timothy is dealing with false teachers who have arisen. Um, and so really what's happening is the apostles, those who had walked intimately and closely with Jesus, um, it's, it's kind of the end of that age. Um, the church is being set up and situated. And so Timothy's, the letter that he receives is helping the church know how it's to be ordered, um, how it's to be structured, so that mission and worship can happen, so that it's, so that it's healthy. And I think it's important for us as we look at this letter, which in places is, is intensely practical, but maybe it doesn't always feel like it's, it's relevant to every believer. Um, it is. It is relevant, but because it talks about leadership, because it talks about widows, because it talks about these specific entities, I think we can read through Timothy and go, oh, I don't, I don't see myself immediately and move on. But, but here's, here's the deal. As we Look at this as we are wrapping up our time in Timothy this week and next week. Um, God has, has given us the church, right? His rescue plan was to bring in sinners, rebels, enemies into his family to make them sons and daughters. And then he chooses to do that by sending a baby, right, in Jesus. Not in power, not in fortune, not in fame, but it's humility. And then Jesus walks this, this humble life and begins to select other humble men, right? Plain men, fishermen, tax collectors to come alongside him. And then God's plan has Jesus die, right? Like it, it's not that he takes over, that he conquers the world, that he does these things. It's that the plan to rescue us and to redeem us is through this humble Um, shocking, obedient, sacrificial death of Jesus. And then Jesus beats sin and Satan and death, and he is resurrected, proving that he is God, and that all the promises that he has made through his ministry are real, and they're true, and they're right. And then in Acts 1, we have Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, where he resides today, he is talking to some of his disciples. He says, I want you to take this message and this ministry to the ends of the earth. And I want you to tell them what I've done. And they say, so how long? And he says, until I return. And so what we're reminded is that the, the church, right, was gifted by God to us as plan A with no plan B. And so Timothy setting up the household of God um, and making sure that we, we understand how it's to be organized and what's going on isn't just this, well, we'll leave it to those few people to care about. It matters because this morning, some almost 2,000 years removed from Jesus' ascension and him giving that charge, that command to the disciples in another continent, we are recipients of that story and of that message and of that salvation, of that gift and of that grace. And the story continues to march forward. There are no 2,000-year-old churches, right? But the church is 2,000 years old. And it will continue far after we're all gone. And after Redeemer is forgotten. 
right? The, the church will continue to move forward because that's been what we've been tasked with, and this is God's rescue plan for the world, for, him, for His name and praise and glory to be seen through the way that we interact with one another, right? And so before we were in 1 Timothy, for those who weren't with us then, we were preaching through the, the book of Amos. And in Amos, God is extraordinarily displeased with His people because they're not rightly reflecting his character, because they're not walking in a way that honors or pleases or shows his justice and his mercy and his compassion. And so the church then gets to be right a reflection of God's character on display in the world. And it's why Paul will write to Timothy and say, look, the, the primary focus of the church right, is to be on mission. It's to be drawing others into an understanding and a knowledge of who Jesus is because he's then worthy of the worship they're going to bring. And so church, where some of these things don't feel maybe quite so like they matter to our day in and day out situations, many of you have been in churches that have gone haywire. And you see then the effect that it has and how it short circuits mission and how it short circuits worship and how it puts off a, a, a bad reflection. On, on Christians and on the character of God. And so Timothy is being told, I want you to organize the church rightly because God is the head and he is setting up his household, right? And if we live in a household where no one knows the rules, it's chaos for everyone, right? Like you, so um, this is a, a random example, but, it, but in the Middle East, you'll see little boys and often, I mean, they're outside pitching rocks and they're beating on people and they're just being boys, Right? And that's kind of how their dads look at it. Until one day, they're doing the same thing they've done their entire life, and dad just comes out and wears them out. I mean, just, like, fights them like a man. And the kid's just like, wait, I've spent 12 years doing this. What's going on? And he's like, well, today you're a man. But he had no, no way of knowing that that day was today. <laughs> right? And so God doesn't say, hey, here's the household of God. Good luck with the rules. Good luck with the organization. Have fun figuring it out. He... He says, I'm the head, and I'm going to set up my household, and I'm going to give some rules, and I'm going to give some organization, and I'm going to give some consequences if these things aren't met and followed, right? And, and we're not left in the dark. And so First Timothy 5, um, we, we looked at it last week in light of the least of these somewhat, and in widows specifically. This morning, we're going to continue, and it just continues to be intensely practical, so let's pick up in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. 
Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So Paul, is, as he's ending the letter, he's just beginning to lay out some really practical instructions. Several weeks ago, um, our Paul, Paul Rayburn, one of our Pauls, we have many, um, <laughs> preached um, a, a great message just walking through the qualifications of elders and what that looks like and why the church needs them and, and the role that they're to play. Paul now, um, the apostle, comes back this week um, and, and is beginning to tell Timothy, hey, you, you know what the intent is. The church is to be the buttress of truth, that the mission is supposed to go forth, and God's supposed to be worshipped. Yeah, but sometimes things are going to go awry. And if they do, I'm going to give you some instructions on how to deal with that. These initial couple verses um, t- are talking about taking care of your elders. And I want to say this, like, it is not awkward in the least this morning for me to preach this passage. Because um, Redeemer, you, you do a good job of this. Um, it's, it's not often you'll hear this passage and there's like this tension in the minister's voice because he's, what he's trying to say is, you're not honoring me, you're not paying me, you're not doing, like, and, and he's like, so here's, thus saith the Lord, right? Take care of me, <laughs> right? And that's not the situation this morning. So we can just look at this honestly that he says, look, let the elders who rule well, right, who lead, who take take care of the church, be considered worthy of double honor. The double honor he's referring to is this. One is that they're taken care of financially. And two, that that you you respect them, that you show honor, that you show appreciation, knowing that the job um, can be sometimes thankless, that sometimes it can be uh, emotionally or mentally challenging, or that you can feel down. Like there's the the, the joke that runs around that's not really a joke that talks about the Monday morning blues, right? That, that pastors get through Sunday and on Monday they want to quit, right? That, that there's that kind of mentality. And that, again, I'm saying this because it's not been a struggle here at Redeemer, but they're saying show honor to those who do this right and well because they're serving you. And he continues by beginning to quote some scripture in verse 18. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So he's quoting here from Deuteronomy 25, 4. And then he says, And the laborer deserves his wages, which this is Luke 10, 7. And the idea was that someone would, off, would often rent an ox from someone else. And they would have this big millstone, and they would tie the ox to it, and it would walk in a circle, and it's threshing, right? It's, it's taking care of the grain. And what they would do is they would muzzle the ox. And so instead of it being able to eat while it's working, right, they're gaining financially because they're going to have more grain in the end, and it's not my ox, right? So the guy I borrowed it from, right, I'm not going to take care of his ox. And so this is nestled into a passage in Deuteronomy 25 where it's talking about being unjust. And so what they're saying is this, is, hey, don't benefit economically from someone who's benefiting you, right? Like, so if they're taking care of you, if they're providing a service to you, don't then, and you're, and you're re- receiving it, he's like, then don't try to figure out a way to not take care of the one who's taking care of you. 
And so it's just Paul's way of saying, look, you, you want to take care of the ox, right? It's great imagery for a pastor, apparently, right? It's very um, humble imagery of just the one that's, that's just kind of going in and, and after day after day. And he's saying, so take care of them, right? Don't make this harder than it has to be because the work is, it, it's labor. It, it's, it's effort intensive, it's hard work. He's not looking to flatter here. He continues. So I want you to take care of those who labor in preaching and teaching. So here's, here's what this looks like. We, we obviously have more than one elder. We have four elders. Um, I do the bulk of the preaching. But when it says that these, those who labor in preaching and teaching, it's the ability to take God's word and rightly divide it. Right? And for some, that's going to be primarily in, in a preaching format. But ultimately, what and, and, and Paul got into this a little bit as we looked at the qualifications, is can an elder take the word and encourage you? Can he use the word to challenge you? In conversation, can he use the word to persuade you that the path that you're going on is going to lead to trouble because it's sin? Is he able to take it to, to bring comfort when hard things have occurred? Is he able to plead with you? Is he able to instruct you with the word of God and not just his West Texas wisdom? Is he able to take the word and minister to you? So he says, so let those who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so what he's saying is, this is the expectation. This is what the church, this is the intent. This is what should happen. So recognize it if it's happening. But then he continues in verse 19. Because the church is made up of, of right, sinners, those who have needed God's grace to rescue them, because we live in a world that is still marred by sin, right? sometimes things don't go as intended. And so he's beginning to let the church know, here's what we're going to do with it. Verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So initially what he says is this. Hey, if someone's got a complaint, an issue against an elder, hey, you, you don't recognize it, don't acknowledge it, don't receive it, unless it's brought by more than one. And here's why he's going to initially say this. Ministry and ministers in particular are vulnerable to slander. Right? Like it, it, because it's, it's your word versus theirs. Um, and so a, a quick smear campaign can absolutely devastate a church or a minister that could legitimately be innocent, right? And here's why. If you think about the situations that you deal with, whether it's at work or family or in the neighborhood or in politics or whatever it is, we are really quick to believe things that we hear, right? We're really quick to believe them. And then the onus is put on the person who needs to speak second to prove they're innocent, right? And so if, if I came to you this week and said, hey, I need to tell you something, right? Let me tell you what uh, Rex McKay did. And I, and I just like start gossiping about Rex. And it's a bald-faced lie, right? The onus really isn't on me to prove it, Right? Because your thought, you're going, oh, I always thought that about Rex. Well, wait, I've seen, I've seen this about him. And so now it's on him, 
right, to figure out how do I not just prove my innocence, but I've got, got to go overboard to prove my innocence because now there's this seed of doubt that's in there of like, okay, maybe not this time, but we'll get you next time, right? Like we, we, we know this, that we are affected by people's words, and often the first to speak gets that we, we give the assumption of truth, right, unless they're just known for being a liar, the, the assumption is, and so what he's saying is this, he is, we're careful here, he is not saying that elders are above correction, right? He's not saying that we can't, we can't even begin to talk about the Lord's anointed, that's not what he's saying. Because we see in Galatians that Paul and Peter, right, Paul goes after Peter publicly, right, for walking away and beginning to, to question some things, and he says, look, you're not living in a way that's honoring God, and we're going to deal with this publicly because you are an apostle. So God's ministers, his elders, are able to be corrected. They're not above correction. But he says, look, because we know that they're in a vulnerable position, we're not just going to let anyone who says, well, I saw this, I heard this, I did this, right? Well, it's true, fire them. Now listen, it's important to note this, especially in the day and age that we live in. He is not talking here about illegal activity. If someone makes an accusation about illegal activity, especially in regards to abuse, it's going to go to the authorities immediately. That is the right and proper channel for things to be dealt with. What, what Paul is writing to Timothy about is this. If this person is domineering, right, if they're showing nepotism, if they're showing favoritism, right, if they're acting a certain way in front of the crowd, but then they get you in, in your ministry over here and they just ream you all the time and they show anger, if they're, if they're showing sin that is not becoming of an elder, we're not talking about illegal activity that needs to be a, like, taken to the authorities. That is one, one accusation is enough. You don't have to abuse multiple people to go to jail, right? You abuse one, you go to jail, right? But what he is talking about is sin within the church that is not illegal activity. It's slander. It's gossip. It's power. It's these type of things. It's pride. That if just because you've had an experience, we're, we're going to give an assumption that maybe you misunderstood until it begins to be a theme and there are multiple people they're saying these things, right? Why? So he says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But, verse 20, he's going to assume, because they have false teachers amongst them, he's going to assume that sometimes this is going to happen, that you're actually going to be guilty. And as for those who persist in sin, so it's been shown to be true, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. So he's like, you don't go, okay, hey, just, just, just step down quietly. We'll let this go away. He's like, no. If they are persisting in sin because they're in a public office, you rebuke them publicly before the congregation. Right? That people will see that sin has effect and it has consequences. Right? The church in, in Ephesus has already struggled with, with people being deceived. And false teaching has emerged. He's like, you've got to deal with this in a public manner. This passage has been used to bring about a lot of hurt and abuse, right? If we're honest, that we know that the church as an organization has taken a lot of black eyes over the last few decades and even in the, in the recent days because these right words have been used to say, I'm going to cover up for my buddy or I'm going to protect him or we're not going to deal with sin publicly 
And so there's been hurt, there's been neglect, there's been abuse, there's been damage, there's been been cover-up. And there is a right mistrust of organizations, and people have rightly, unfortunately, had to assume the worst. But he tells them, look, when this happens, rebuke them publicly, right? So you're telling people, this isn't okay, and we're not going to stand for this, and this is not what an elder is. You're dealing with it. It's not being covered up. He then tells Timothy a few other things specifically. He says, I want you to rebuke them in the presence of all. And then in verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels. What he's doing here is he, is he lists three. He's saying in front of God and Jesus and the elect angels. He's saying not the fallen angels, not demons, right? Of the angels who are still serving God. The reason is, is that a charge in Deuteronomy, we see this in 17.6, and we see it in 19.4, that charges in court were not accepted unless there were multiple people making the accusation. And so he's saying, so when you're making now a public accusation and rebuking an elder in front of the congregation, just know their witnesses are there who are affirming it because they've known it and seen it too. That's the angels and it's Jesus and it's the Father. Right, that we're going we're gonna to meet the same criteria that we're asking others to do as they come. Listen, so just a quick aside. If you personally have an issue with someone, Matthew 18 gives us some what we're supposed to do. And where this begins is that you, as an individual, take your issue to that individual. Whether that is an elder or anyone else. That you go to them first and speak to them. And if it's not dealt with a Appropriately, if they don't repent, if they don't respond, if there's a disagreement that can't be dealt with, then we begin to bring others in. And so if right now you're like, hey, I've got an issue with you, Jeremy. Here's something I think, and I can't find anyone else who agrees with me. You still don't wait for a second or third, but you can bring it to me, right? And, and we'll deal with it accordingly or with whoever. That, that Matthew 18 shows us the way that we deal with with a breakdown in, in relationship. He's just saying, we're not going to take it before the church on the basis of one person's word unless there's evidence, proof, additional witnesses, things going on. He tells Timothy as well, do not, sorry, in the end of verse 21, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging and doing nothing from partiality. So he says, I don't want you to prejudge. You don't assume the guilt or the innocence of who's being made an accusation against. You let the evidence speak for itself. You let the situation be sorted out. You don't assume their guilt or their innocence. Super hard to do, right? Like we were like, yeah, I've always thought that about you. Or we'll say, there's no way that could be true. And both of those can be used to cover up or to hurt people. So he's saying, don't prejudge, Timothy. You deal with it with the, what the witnesses say, what the elders have sought out and, and discovered, what people are telling, what the evidence says. And he says also, so don't just not prejudge, but do nothing from partiality. Here's what he's saying. Don't show favorites, favoritism. Because in showing favoritism, people get hurt. Because you're like, oh, I don't want to lose him as an elder. So we're just going to, that's not really what happened. That's not really what was said. That's not really what was being dealt with. And he's like, you can't do that. So he tells them, rebuke publicly, don't prejudge, do this without partiality. And the fourth thing is this, if we look at verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. So in, earlier when we walked through the qualifications of an elder, 
qualifications of a deacon, one of the things was, hey, they're not a new believer, right? That they've been tested, that they've been seen. So he's saying, don't be too quick to put your hands on a guy and say, this guy is an elder. Because he says, if you do, and now charges come up against them later on, and now you're standing there publicly rebuking this man, he's like, there's an element of this that you're a little bit complicit in their sin. If you were too quick to put them in a position they didn't belong in. So just because you really need help, or you really need additional leaders, or you feel like you're drowning, he's like, don't be too quick to lay on hands. He's not saying that Timothy is guilty of the sin, but he's like, you're going to have to deal with it, because they're going to say, hey, you vouched for him. You're the one who said this guy was faithful, that he was an elder. It's why a process matters. It's why time matters. So, so let's just quickly hear for Redeemer. I told you there are four elders. That does not mean that there are only four elder qualified men in this church. That is a far cry from being true. There are a lot of elder qualified men. But what we don't want to do, right, is make unilateral decisions where I stand someone up and say, hey, trust me, you trust me that this man is who I say he is. We want the church to affirm those things, to see those things over time, over situations, over, right? It's in, in pre-marriage counseling, we'll tell people all the time, have you, have you vacationed together yet? Right? Have you hung out with her family yet? Right? Have you done these things that are high-stress situations and seen how they react? Have you put yourself in situations where it's not just we show up at the same restaurant at 7 o'clock with a four-hour lead time, right, to make sure that we're looking good, smelling good, right, ready to deal with conversation? Like, have you been in the nitty-gritty of life? Because if you haven't, you may not know who they are, right? You may not know how they're going to respond or react when, right, the waiter gets their food completely wrong. You may not know how they're going to respond or react when there hasn't been sleep for four or five days. Right? Like you want to see people in, their, in the reality. In the, you, can't, you, can't, you can't expediate that process. And so we want to be slow to lay hands on elders here. We want to see what happens when things maybe are bad for them financially. How do they respond when things are really good financially? How do they respond with loss? How do they respond with difficulty? Do they run from the faith? Do they question it? Do they lean into it? Right? That when we stand someone up, the, the response that we would hope to say when we're laying hands on them would be, they weren't already? Right? Like, that's a healthy response. Like, I just thought they were. Because they do all of these things and they meet all of these qualifications. And so I don't want you to hear that we are slighting anyone right now because the process needs to be long. We need to see for time. And it's not just that the elders need to affirm that, that the church needs to affirm that. I love verse 23 because it, it reminds us that this is a legitimate le letter. You ever been in conversation with someone and in the midst of it, all of a sudden, they're just like, there's some word that you just said or they just said that then like gives them a completely like diff different thought and like, oh yeah, by the way. And then they're like just completely in a new conversation and then they come back to what they were talking about because they're like, before I forget, that's, that's, we, we see this happen in verse 23, right? So he's walking through the process of dealing with elder sin. Um, and he says, hey, I want you to not to take part in the sin of others. Keep yourself pure. That, that phrase, keep yourself pure, is typically is someone who was refrain, like abstaining from alcohol 
for, for health reasons or for religious reasons. That they're, they're doing some things to keep themselves pure. And remember the false teaching that some of where they're going is they're saying, hey, food's bad, relationships are bad, God hasn't given us these good things. Paul's correcting that. And so as he says that, he then thinks of Timothy, who he knows and loves as a son. And he says, hey, Timothy, no longer drink only water. Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And it's like he just said, as he thought about the purity, the not drinking alcohol, he remembers Timothy, who he loves, and he's like, hey, by the way, you need to be drinking some wine for your, for your, your ailments. So make sure you're doing that. And then he goes right back into what he's dealing with here. Right? It's just this kind of reminder that this was a, a real interaction between Paul and Timothy. And so he comes right back to it in verse 24. He's like, I've, okay, I've grabbed that thought. I wrote it down. 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, right? And he just like continues right back on. It's more awkward when it's written than when it's said, right? It makes sense when we're talking. When it's written down, you're like, Paul, you have a little stroke there? Like what's, what's going on? And so he just says, the sins of some people are conspicuous. What he's saying is, some people, you look at them and you're like, yeah, you got a lot going on there. There's a lot of sin happening here. He goes, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Here's what he's telling Timothy. You better be discerning. Because some people are super impressive on first impression. And he said, and they got a whole lot of junk and a whole lot of baggage going on. And so if you're quick to lay on hands, if you don't walk through the process, you're going to find yourself often standing before the church rebuking someone who you put up forth as one who is supposed to be worthy of double honor because they've led well. And instead, there is shame upon you, there's shame upon them, there's shame upon the church, and on the glory of God. He said, so some of their sins are not going to appear to later, so don't be so quick. And ultimately here, what he's calling us to is, is discernment. He's reminding us that what we see in people is only a portion of who they are, right? That people are an iceberg, right? They give us what they want us to know, and that it takes time and, and energy and effort and conversation and circumstances to begin to see more and more who they are under the surface. That deception is possible, Right? That, that whether it's with doctors or teachers or people that are potentially people you want to date, right? that deception is possible. That with pastors, that with politicians, that how we put ourselves off can be right, rightly intended, but we got too much going on to really for that to be true, or it could be that we know how to play the game. So he's like, be slow to lay on hands. There are things that you see and there are things that you do not see. There's the appearance, and then there is reality. And we need to see the depth, the reality. He continues, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. He's reminding them that, look, things will be found out. And over the last year to 18 months, there's been a lot of big-name ministers across denominations that, whose sins over years and decades have been exposed. It's just kind of the reminder that, God knows, and he will expose, and we will stand in judgment. And so it's as we want to aspire to these offices that we would also be honest with who we currently are, that we would not be looking to hide these things. 
And then he, he ends this section with two verses real quick about slavery. And he says, So let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, as slaves, regard their masters of, of worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And so what we see in verse 1 is this. He says, I want you to honor your masters, right? Because of why? Because of mission and of worship. He's reminding us of the theme of Timothy. Now listen, slavery in the Roman culture, what, roughly a third of the population of, of the Rome, of the Roman like land were slaves. So he's like, if, if we all of a sudden remove a third of the folks from slavery, like the, the society is going to crumble. Um, so there was slavery of all sorts. There were those who had been conquered and owned, which is repulsive. There were those who had sold themselves into slavery. There were those who simply worked for families for generations. But in verse 2, we begin to see that Paul is not affirming slavery. He's simply saying in this specific cultural situation where we have slavery present right now, we need, to, we need to deal with this because we want God's name to be glorified and we want mission to happen. And look at what he says then in verse 2. So he's writing to folks in the church who are slaves. Hey, so those of you who have believing masters, don't be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So if initially he's looking at them saying, hey, don't be disrespectful to your master. But then he throws in, because you're brothers. He's making them equal. Right? He's already said in, in other letters right, that before God, there is no partiality. That, that the slave owner and the slave are seen by God the same. Right? That, that no one gains because they have more money or more power. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So here's what he's saying. Hey, slaves, you get to be the benefactor. And in this culture, the benefactor was the one in the stronger social position who would do something kind for either the poor or the, the unhealthy or the down and out, and they would benefact the lower. And he's turning things on their head, and he's like, hey, slaves, you know and you love and you trust Jesus, you are now the benefactor. You are going to serve the weaker brother, right, who is the slave owner. And so he is not writing, slavery's bad, end it all right now. Because the church's name would be maligned, is not on mission, not bringing worship, because they're looking to disrupt society. But Paul is turning it on its head here by saying, you are equal because you are brothers and slave. You are the benefactor of the slave owner as you serve them in a way that respects them and shows honor to God. That he continues the point of the whole letter has been worship and mission as a buttress of truth in the world. So listen, um, this section, he has said, I want you to honor the widows I want you to, who have served well. I want you to honor elders who serve well. I want you to honor um, your slave master if you happen to be in that situation. It's not that they're perfect. We're following the chief shepherd. He then gives them instructions that if things don't go right, here's what you do to handle elders who are sinning. And he reminds them that all things are going to be revealed. So this very practical section. And so here's where we're going to end. With one kind of theological thought for us to take and one super practical thought. We'll do the practical one first. What Timothy is doing is he's, as he's laying out the household, as, as he's doing that in Ephesus based on Paul's instructions, is Paul is helping us know how to pick a church. 
right? Because not all of you are going to spend the rest of your life in Pampa or in the Panhandle. And you're going to move somewhere. A job's going to take you somewhere. You're going to move closer to family or things are going to happen. And, and he says, like, how do you pick a church? And he's like, are they on mission? Are they making much of Jesus in everything that they do? And are those in leadership serving the body, not domineering, but they're teaching faithfully? Are they worthy of honor? Is the church a family? Right? Are they, are they living out the one another's together, not just calling themselves family, but actually being family? You notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, pick the church that has the best student ministry. Pick the church that has the best music that most appeals to you. Pick the church that has the most, um, right, like, buzz right now. He's saying the church is the household of God. It is to be a place of truth in the community where people are loving one another, where they are family, where the mission is going forward, and so others are coming into faith and Jesus is being worshipped. So he's saying there are some things that you should be looking for, and it's not the things that necessarily our culture teaches us to look for when we're more consumer-driven. He's saying, but there are these anchors that should guide us as we move in. And so it may mean that you sacrifice something on, oh, my preferences aren't always being met, but there's faithfulness here. Or in some other church that you one day choose to be a part of. So here's the theological Church, we are called as sons and daughters into the kingdom of God, into his family, which is the church universal. But you have been placed into this local body. And it is a place to belong, to be safe, to be cared for, and to play your role. Right? to live out the one another's, to live on mission, to assume the best about one another, to practice what Scripture calls us to. And so if we have an issue, we take it to them rather than gossiping about it. If that's not dealt with, we take it with two or three, right, that we live out because we want to be family. And so it means on the hard days, we don't run because we're family. And on the good days, we celebrate together. And on the, the mundane days, we encourage one another because, listen, we're trying to get to the king with all of us in, in tow. That we're not okay with someone dropping off to the side saying, ah, oh, it's collateral damage. That we're locking arms and making much of Jesus and saying, together, family, we're going to get to the king who has rescued us and drawn us into family and he has given us eyes to see him and to treasure him. So what Timothy is doing may feel a little bit removed but would it be a place where we can look and say, hey, is Redeemer meeting these things? And if not, then let's deal with it. Right? That we have a role and a responsibility in this. So church, let's pray. And then we will respond to the Lord. Father, we, we would ask that, that you would give us eyes to see areas where we as a church um, are potentially not living this out. Father, that you would not give us um, blindness to, to areas of pride or to sin or to deception. Father, that we would not leave this to the responsibility of someone else, but that we would look around and say, we are family. We are, 
We are spiritual aunts and uncles, and we are spiritual brothers and sisters, and we have children, and we have grandparents, that we would see ourselves as family, and so we would not be okay with folks being left behind. That we would pursue after you because you have filled us with your spirit. You have given us eyes to glory in you, and that we want to rightly reflect your name and your image and your character to Pampa and to the Panhandle and beyond. By the way, we love one another. By the way, we forgive one another. By the way, we bear with the sins and burdens of one another. By the way, we pursue reconciliation, knowing that you have been the example for all of these things. And Father, would we be slow to lay hands on leaders? Because we want to honor your name. And Father, would those who have been called as leaders be humbled, not arrogant? to know that deception is possible, that sin is possible, that they are not above correction. And Father, that we are to lead by teaching your word and pointing to you, the chief shepherd, the pastor of this church. So Jesus, we ask you to speak. Lord, would we repent where it is necessary for those this morning who don't know you? Lord, would they long to be a part of your family? and a part of a church where it is safe to belong even when they're tired and weary and not okay. So Jesus, we need you and we ask you to speak.